I really appreciate, obviously, this church and uh, what it's, how it's changed my life, and I trust some of your lives as well. It's a privilege to have been a part of the church family and to be able to serve as a pastor. And I look back on those 23 years, 22 years, with great fond memories and very few negative experiences, which is a blessing if you run around with other pastors and see some of the struggles and problems that they face. Some of them brought on by themselves, but so often it's also the church. This is a good church. I see a number of new faces, and uh, I want to thank you for coming. You may not know me, and I understand that. Uh, Most of you, though, I know. And I know you've endured uh, 23, over 23 years of, of my ministry, and I know that my favorite preaching, and you, you know that my favorite preaching and teaching almost always involved a very difficult passage of Scripture, which at first glance seems impossible to understand or appeared to contradict what other Scriptures taught. But in the ministry of sharing the Word of God, nothing gave me more satisfaction than taking one of those really tough Scriptures, like James 2, we have to get that up there, a passage like that and say, okay, we can handle that. We can get to the bottom of what that means and how it applies to our life. Today's message will be somewhat different. It's what they call a topical message, but it's on a topic that I think is very appropriate for this church because you are a model, in my opinion, of what this message is about. But just being a model doesn't mean we can't learn something, and continue to be what we should be. I'm going to be talking about being faithful. And uh, this is a faithful church. Now, I know what I remember most, and I'm sure some of you remember when I was pastoring the church, was all the funny and sometimes thrilling stories we love to share and relive. But the faithfulness and tireless service of so many of you who make up the church is what I want to call attention to today. That's Coast Bible Church. We often call this building Coast Bible Church, but that's incorrect. A picture of the building there. You are Coast Bible Church, not the building. You are Coast Bible Church. This is simply a place where we meet. And move to the next slide there. There are many things that adorn and stand out about this building. We, uh, the new sound system is fantastic. Really great. But this is still simply the place where we meet. But in my opinion, there is one thing that has especially adorned this church family over the years that I've known you, both as a missionary, but going back even to when I pastored the church. And what stands out to me is your faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to me, not to others, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church that I think models faithfulness. My hope is that one day we will be together again when our Lord returns. and We will be among those whom are called the chosen and faithful. 
That, to me, is extremely important. Join me in prayer. Father, our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the memories we share and for the the way that you've directed and ministered to this church over many years. Thank you for Tom and for the good work that he's doing and for those that have come alongside to support and encourage him and each other in the work that you have for us to do, especially in California and beyond all over the world. Thank you for Edward and Hannah and their great work and for my privilege of being a part of their ministry. Again, we just thank you for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, I've worked now for about 11 years as a missionary with Be World. And my primary responsibilities, uh, which I didn't expect when I first started, but I sort of gravitated to it, which probably makes sense for most of you, is that I am focused on teaching Bible and theology to pastors and Christian leaders in countries where a good biblical education is very difficult to get. Some have gotten one. Edward and Hannah are well-trained. But many people haven't been able to get that kind of education. Currently, I am investing most of my time working with them, Edward and Hannah, and teaching in a country we know as Burma. As I have come to know the Burmese people, I continue to be amazed at their kindness to one another, their excellent work ethic, and their integrity and their commitment to what we would call family values. However, when it comes to their view of America, I was sometimes taken back. When I first became acquainted with many of them, they would ask me two questions. This was back a ways. The first question is, what do you think of Obama? I didn't answer that question, not because I have negative or positive feelings, but because there just wasn't anywhere that was going to go that would be good, because I said something positive, they'd say something negative, or so forth. On the other hand, they ask a second question after I said, I'll pass on that one. They asked me if I had a gun. A gun? Where'd that come from? You see, in their mindset... All Americans have guns. And I told him that. I said, well, yes, here, well, we all have guns. At least in my state, Colorado. <laughs> I know here it's a different ball game, but that's uh, the whole point was that when I asked them, uh, they were very interested in our gun culture. Even my good friends, Edward and Hannah, Edward was going to come to the United States. This is probably four or five years ago, six years ago. And, and uh, I said, what would you like to do when you come there? I want to shoot a gun. <laughs> what? Oh, we set that up. It ended up that we, the whole mission organization of Be World went out. Those that had guns went out and shot together with Edward. Two years later, Hannah was going to come and accompany us. And I thought, Hannah, what would you like to do when you come to the United States? And I thought, well, she'd say, like, to go shopping, and, you know, I'd love to go at this store or that store. Hannah says, no, I want to shoot a gun. <laughs> I mean, what? 
petite, beautiful Hannah wants to shoot a gun. Okay. So we managed to pull that off. I'd almost forgot, and they'd been there about two weeks, and I'd almost forgot about it. And uh, she mentioned it, you know, we didn't get to shoot the gun. So we went down to the basement and shot guns. <laughs> a wild evening. It does bring to mind, however, when we talk about this subject with some humor, it does bring to mind something we often take for, take for granted as believers living in the United States of America, and that is the freedoms and privileges not available to people who live in other parts of the world. The freedom not only to own a gun and shoot a gun, but the freedom to worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, without fear of persecution. Try that in the Middle East, where I first started my, that was my first experience overseas teaching the Bible with B World, in Egypt. You don't have freedom to worship there. They showed me their card, and it said Muslim, and I was teaching 12 of them. They were all Christians, believers, but they couldn't change. They had to raise their children Muslim. There was no freedom. How about the freedom to vote and take part in a democratic process? It's nothing more than a charade in many of those countries, in Russia, China, so forth. The freedom to access or to have access to good health care. The freedom to acquire a good education. The freedom to work hard, live well, to eat good food, to live in a nice home, to drive a good car, to invest something for our retirement. These are wonderful freedoms we have in America. The freedom to live without tyranny or fear of oppression. The list goes on. However, there is a problem with all these freedoms we enjoy. This American dream, as we often call it. That is, we've become so enraptured with the American dream and protecting it, we've lost sight of our Heavenly Father's dream for our lives as His children. Ask yourself this question. How would our Heavenly Father want His children to live in this nation called the United States of America? That's the critical question. A nation often driven by money and greed. A nation that is obsessed with the super beautiful, the super athletes, the super powerful, the super rich, the super entrepreneurs, even the super preachers, of which I'm not one. But as Christians, we are reminded to be wary of the world and its approach to life. Friends, as you and I know well, bigger is not necessarily better. Success is not not necessarily an indication of God's approval. And acceptance by our friends and peers is not necessarily a confirmation that we're doing it right. To God, what we call large may be small. What we call success may be failure. What we call or what men accept or women accept, he may reject. 
So how does our Lord Jesus Christ want us to live in the United States of America? Most of us are just ordinary people. I am. But God wants us to live an extraordinary life. Our God has called us to live lives of greatness as He measures greatness. He has called us to be successful as He measures success and prosperity. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to live such an extraordinary lives as ordinary people? How are we going to achieve greatness in the estimation of our God? How are we going to succeed in this land of ours as our Lord Jesus Christ measures success? That's the measure. First, we need an adjustment in the way we usually see things. We usually see things from our perspective. Instead, we need to see the world and the things of this world as God sees them. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter talks about the burning up of, the, of all that we see. In verse 11, we'll move down to that. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the haste for and the hastening of the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? How does God view those things we usually associate with the American dream? The big homes, the nice cars, the monuments that we have built for ourselves. How does he see these things, all this affluence? Poof. Dissolved, burned up, gone. Melted with fervent heat. Is God saying we should not have nice homes? Nice cars, nice things? No, not at all. He's just saying we should see them for what they are, temporary things that meet our needs, perhaps provide a measure of joy, and which may help us accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish. But they're not what makes us great in the eyes of God. So what will make us great in the eyes of God? What will enable us to live an extraordinary life as an ordinary person? And all of us have that opportunity. You say, well, I'm not extraordinary. No, you're ordinary like me. But we can live an extraordinary life. How? Notice that in this passage in which Peter highlights the dissolution of all things, Peter asks a question. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If all the things of this world which men and women point to with pride are nothing more than soap bubbles, gone... things that contribute only for the moment in time, how then should we then live? Which brings us to the second thing we need to achieve uh, in order to achieve greatness in the estimation of God, and that is we need an adjustment in the way we think. You know, we're all thinkers. Some people, you know, they, they sort of put on this idea, well, I'm not a thinker like you or whatever. That's, we're all thinking. If we're not thinking, we're dead. (laughs) 
we need to understand the manner of persons we Christians ought to be in the estimation of God. We need to answer Peter's rhetorical question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness in light of the fact that all this that we like and enjoy, which is not wrong, but it's going to be burned up one day. To answer that question, we need to know how God measures an extraordinary life. We need to know how God measures greatness as a Christian. We need to know how God measures success. Whether we are Christians living in Burma, or Miramar, as it's called there, India, Nepal, Egypt, or the United States. And I've served in all those places. We need to know what is important to God as He evaluates the lives of His children here on this earth. So let me state this bluntly, and this is no shock. You probably know what I'm about to say. What is most important to our God when it comes to our lives on this earth is this, that we remain faithful, that we remain faithful. God measures greatness by a believer's faithfulness. God measures success by a believer's faithfulness. God calls a Christian life, a Christian's life extraordinary because that Christian was faithful. That's what he's driving on. Now you may say, I already knew that. You're right. Of course you did. But do you believe it? Do I believe it? It's something I have to constantly challenge myself about. Are you and I convinced it's true? The problem with many of us as Christians is that we have been told over and over again that we ought to be faithful. But in our, in our supercharged world, we just have a hard time believing it. We have failed to understand just how important being a faithful Christian is to our God. We have failed to believe what he says clearly that he desires for each one of us and our lives, and that is that we be faithful. In his parable of the two servants in Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus asked this question. Who then is a faithful and wise servant who his master made ruler over his household? In his parable to the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus compares himself to a master who entrusts his servants with varying degrees of wealth. Then one day when he returns, his servants are called to give an account, and this is what the master says. Now I'm just covering two of these because it's pertinent to what we're talking about today. I'm not getting into the third one, which isn't necessary for the message. Read with me on this. This is Matthew 25, verse 20, 23. You can look on the board above us. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He who also received just two talents, he came and said, Lord, look, you delivered to me two talents, and I have gained two more talents. And the Lord said to him, same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Now, each received different amounts. 
But they were both praised equally because they both took what they were given and they made use of it. They multiplied it. We could easily apply this to God's placing us in different nations of the world with varying opportunities to use the freedoms and blessings that we have to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a lot more blessing, I mean, in the sense of freedoms than some other countries. But the believer in this country or the believer in that country will be considered in light of that, and if they've been faithful to use what they have, they will be rewarded equally. That's the key. Too much is given, much is expected. One day when we stand before our Lord, the issue will not be how much we have accumulated. Look at all I've got, Lord. I've done all this for you. Yeah, you live in the United States. Some other person's coming from Egypt, and he's got just a little bit, but he presents it to the Lord, and the Lord says, oh, well done. Both of you have done well, even though the, what we were able to give was different. That's the point that's being made here. It's our faithfulness that the Lord is looking at. It's not what we've accomplished and are able to offer to him. It's what we have done because we were faithful. This principle holds true for all believers in all countries, in all circumstances. It's never about how great our accomplishments nor how many we've impacted or how much wealth we've accumulated, but how faithful we were with whatever we were entrusted with. Luke 16, Jesus emphasizes the same thing again, only this time with regard to how we use money, or mammon as it's called, money and wealth. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. This is uh, in in, um, Luke 16. Therefore, if you have been faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? In other words, we have money, we have wealth. If we use it wisely, we will be rewarded and commended. But if we squander it, we will not be rewarded. Jesus isn't going to turn over to us the wealth of the world to come if we've been unfaithful with the wealth of this world. That's the point. Clearly being faithful with money or any other gift or blessing or privilege or spiritual ability or natural ability, all of this belongs to God and we need to use it for his glory. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Over and over again, he kept hammering home this point to those who would be his disciples. Be faithful. Was that a point not missed in the early church? Faithfulness in one's life and ministry became the primary quality praised and applauded in the early church. Listen to the, this account in the book of Acts as a new Christian named Lydia, and who, after being baptized, begged Paul and his companions to, say, uh, to stay with her. And she said, if you've judged me to be faithful, I've been baptized, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. They were persuaded because she was faithful to be baptized. Baptism was a clear signal of someone's faithfulness to God. And faithfulness is what early Christians like Paul prized as well. Baptism does not provide us eternal life. 
I trust that most of you have been baptized. When you were baptized, you didn't gain eternal life. You gained that when you believed in Jesus Christ. But it's because of your baptism that you demonstrated to God and to all the people in the church that you were faithful. And it was that faithfulness that shined through in baptism. Christians, I've, I've talked with Christians before as a pastor who just couldn't bring themselves to be baptized. I'm saying, well, are we not a Christian? Well, yeah, you're a Christian if you believe. But you're depriving yourself of a great opportunity to serve your Lord and to be faithful in what he's commanded us to do, to be baptized. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Then he adds, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. For Paul, the test of success in his ministry was not the fact that many people came to hear him preach. You know, I don't know how many people Paul spoke to. Most of the churches were small, and yet there were gatherings all through the city, and sometimes that was called the church. Numbers just weren't part of the problem or the the goal for Paul, but he was faithful to preach the word whenever he had the opportunity. That's what he drives home. He was a faithful servant of Christ, preaching faithfully the mysteries of God that God had revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. Paul applied the same test of success to churches and his fellow workers in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4, he called Timothy, "My, my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Ephesians 1 and in Colossians 1, he begins his letter by calling attention to the faithful Christians in each of these churches. He singles out people and calls them faithful, whether it was Tychicus or Epaphras or Onesimus. All of these people were servants, and Paul singled them out in the church saying, these are faithful men. And I'm sure there were faithful women, as he pointed out. Does this sound like the way we characterize our fellow Christian leaders today? How might I describe it? It's how I would describe Edward and Hannah. Faithful servants. Faithful with money. Faithful with their time. Faithful with the people that come across their path. It's, hope, it's how I hope friends would characterize me as a missionary, as a minister of the gospel. But is it the way we usually do it in our country today? No, no. We talk about an accomplished preacher who speaks to thousands. Or media personality that, that on their TV shows are addressing millions. Or outstanding scholars have written millions of books, it seems like. Prolific writers. Dynamic leaders. That's how we talk about people. Rule-renowned Christian statesmen. There was this one particular uh, announcement on a Christian radio station. The guy was going on and on about this world-renowned Christian leader. And then he said this. He said, and he was, and he's thin. What? Thin? I just got, you know what? I mean, I'm in trouble. Is that what really makes a person a great man or great woman of God? They're thin? But that's the way we look at it. However, whether in your life or my life, 
the only accolade that we should be concerned about is this. Was he faithful? Was she faithful? Was Edward faithful? Was Hannah faithful? Was Arch faithful? Was Tom faithful? That's what counts. That's all that counts. It's not our body size. It's not the number of people we preach to. It's not how many books we've written. It's not how much we've done in the eyes of men for our Lord. Rather, were we faithful with what he gave us? It's also something that we can know at the very moment as we look back over our lives. Just as the Apostle Paul, looking back over his conversion, his baptism, and his ministry, spoke about himself to Timothy when he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Two churches are mentioned in the book of Revelation out of seven, and they were commended for being faithful. One was persecuted, the church at Smyrna, and one was a church that was just really small. Out of all the churches in the world, it's a small, dinky church. At least that's the impression that's left in the passage. They got the commendation of the Lord. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What God values in each one of our lives is not how well known we are nor how rich we are, nor how powerful we are, or how intelligent we are, or how gifted we are, or how capable we are, nor what we've done, accomplished, or achieved. What God values is how faithful we were and how faithful we are. This is how God measures success, how God measures greatness. Our Lord is not looking for superstars. He's not looking for the next American idol. He's looking for ordinary men and women, boys and girls even, which are mentioned. I want time to go to that one. Who have translated their faith into an extraordinary life of faithfulness. Sometimes these men or women can be big in the estimation of God and in the world. Men like Moses, women like Mary, Billy Graham, who was just recently buried. Even the world paid attention to him. But most often it's just ordinary men and women of faith who live extraordinary lives of faithfulness and are not big in the estimation of the world. In fact, we're often overlooked. Who's he? I don't know. But God knows. Even their names are forgotten, but God knows them. He doesn't forget them. Obtaining notoriety before God depends upon one thing, faithfulness. Even when the cost of sacrifice is enormous, the superstars of eternity will be the faithful. Those who've lived by faith, trusting God for their glorious future and hope. If I'm not faithful, you might say to me, well then, Arch, am I, am I not born again? No, that's not the point. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, he was faithful to give you his promised gift, eternal life. That's yours. However, it is through being faithful that we mature and come to hear those words, and we'll come to hear those words at his judgment seat. And when he says, well done, Arch, well done, Tom, well done, George, Sam, Bob, 
Even Jack. He woke up. <laughs> now you may be thinking, I've sinned time and again and have not lived a faithful life. Or perhaps my sin keeps interrupting my faithfulness. That's, that's my problem. But there's still time to become a faithful servant of Christ Jesus and to recover our faithful or to recover our faithful walk with our Lord. Remember, Noah got drunk, yet he managed, yet mankind was delivered through his faithfulness. David committed murder and adultery, and yet he faithfully continued to be a man after God's own heart and will one day reign with Christ. Peter, a strong believer, denied the Lord three times, but he went on to initiate the church age as we know it. Apart from Jesus Christ, all of God's faithful servants have failed their Lord in some way. And that includes me and includes you. And when we say in sin and fail, that is the moment to remember our Heavenly Father's faithfulness. Remember what he said? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not saying he, he'll give us eternal life. He's saying, at that moment, my relationship with you will be restored and you can continue on this journey of being faithful and one day hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. The issue is not, have we failed? We have and we will fail. In some measure, all of us. But have we become faithful and continue to be faithful, confessing our sin and our wrong, and moving on to become all, all our Lord has purpose for us to become? Back to question one. In the estimation of our Heavenly Father, how can we live an extraordinary life as an ordinary person? Be faithful. Our God, we thank you for this blessing. We thank you that you are our Father as well, that you care deeply about each and every one of us as your children. We will never be allowed to slip out of your hands into the darkness of hell. But Lord, you have great dreams, great opportunities for us that are ahead. Help us, Father, to believe you, to take a hold of those opportunities by being faithful in what you've called us to do from the simplest task to the largest challenge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.